somewhat obscure. Uh, they were called uh, the Lord of the... That's it, Lord of the Rings, yeah. Uh, I'm kidding. Uh, the movie began with a quote that I don't actually think is in the book. Um, but it's a, a quote because a lot of people don't know the story and, and they were wanting to set it up to, to get you in place so that you knew how to, how to manage what you were about to watch. And so the, the, the movie opens. If you've seen the movie, you're familiar with this. The movie opens with, the world has changed. I feel it in the water. I feel it in the earth. I smell it in the air. Much that once was is lost, for none now live who remember it. It's actually not how it begins. It begins with, you know, but then it gets translated into that because it starts out with Elvish. You know. I think part of the reason that that movie succeeded is almost that opening line. Because it rings so true with the age in which we live. We live, and we Christians particularly can sense this, we live in a time of profound transition and change in our culture such as has not been in anyone's life during the American experiment. Things have changed so profoundly And we can feel it all around us, but it's kind of hard to put a name to. We can feel it in the air and in the water and then smell it in the earth. It's it's heavy upon us, that change. I read a book, or I'm reading a book, by the name of Exiles. And uh, his, his opening premise is the change that I think we are sensing. He opens up the book with this idea that taken as a socio-political reality, Christendom has been in decline for the last 250 years. And what is Christendom? Well, Christendom, if you were with us on Sunday night last week, don't worry, I'm not going to do another 30-minute expose on Christendom, but, but Christendom is the reality where church and state stand together to uphold a single culture. And they do so both as respected pillars of the culture. Everyone assumes church as part of Western culture and says that church is what makes us who we are. Even people who are non-participatory in church look to church to give us our conscience. They look to church to give us our values. They look to church to give us our sense of, of what is it all about. And the state upholds the order. Those two things together uphold the culture. Or so it was. This has been the reality that everyone in the West has lived in since Constantine. When Constantine legitimized Christianity and made it a a pillar in his empire. We have lived in in a Christendom reality ever since. Until just recently. That reality is over. It's not ending. It's done. He goes on, he says, so much, of that, so much so that contemporary Western culture has been called by many historians, secular and Christian. Everyone who is writing academically and looking at culture and analyzing it, everyone, Christian, non-Christian alike, is looking at it and calling it the post-Christendom culture. Society, at least in the overtly non-Christian manifestation, is quote-unquote over-Christendom. 
You see that in public expressions of values. Back in the 1980s, the big fight was over school prayer. Do you remember that? That fight's done. Schools don't pray. It is assumed schools don't pray, and if you try, it goes to the Supreme Court and you lose. Now, imagine that reality in the 1930s. It would not made it beyond the regional courts. Of course that would be, but now it, the, the pendulum has shifted. Christendom is done. What is marriage now? What is that? Do we know? Are we allowed to have a voice at the table? Non-Christians would look at that, I suspect. Many non-Christians would say, oh, no, 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 you still have a ton of influence. And I would say, yeah, absolutely, we still have a voice. But we have gone from the head of the table to a very low guest or perhaps a servant. We, the, the world has changed so significantly. And we see that all around us. Nominal Christianity is either dead or dying. By nominal Christianity, I mean a Christianity that doesn't cost much. People go to church because it's good for their business. That's not real anymore. People don't think in order to be a real estate agent, I need to be involved in a church. There was a time when if you wanted to sell houses, you had to be in a church or no one would buy from you. That's not even in people's minds anymore. I listen regularly to a podcast called Revitalize and Replant by Tom Rainer. Tom Rainer is a culture expert. He, he looks at, at church culture and what's going on in the churches around. The reason it's called Revitalize and Replant, this is a new one. He used to have one, well, he still has it, called Rainer on Leadership. But the reason he launched this one is because of the crisis facing America's churches. And across America, churches are fighting for their lives. One of the realities that he repeatedly points out is this. Roughly two-thirds of churches in America are either plateaued or they're in decline. Plateaued means that their membership roles haven't changed in at least two or three years. That they haven't gone up or down. Meaning that they're able to baptize enough to replace what they already had. But they're not able to move forward. Decline obviously means that they're not doing that. That they're not keeping up with their deaths and defections. And so they're now the good news is one third of America's churches are doing okay, right? <laughs> but that's kind of difficult good news, isn't it? Two thirds in plateau or decline. He goes on to say it's estimated that in America over the past decade about four thousand churches have closed their doors each year. Every year. Now, that is across the evangelical sweep, and we can take some comfort and say, oh, well, that's not us. Wait, I'm getting to us. But only a 1,000 churches added each year to that matrix, meaning an annual decline for like a decade of 3,000 churches every year. This is what's going on in our culture around us. This is what we feel in the air, feel in the water. The number of unchurched persons, meaning persons who don't attend church regularly or don't attend at all, is is increasing by leaps and bounds. In 1990, roughly 30%, you can't read that, can you? In in 1990, roughly 30% of, of America was unchurched. 
By the year 2000, that had increased by 3%. Just 3% in 10 years. But 14 years later, it was up to 43%. And that's not a slow, gradual climb. That's a leap forward. We have seen radical change. And worse, I don't know if you can see that chart, but 33% of the unchurched now are formerly churched. People who used to attend church regularly and now don't. You know, and it's not that they're going off somewhere else. They're going away from church and leaving it all together. Well, again, that's not us. Okay, well, let's look at us. In 1906, we had 2,649 congregations. We had 159,000 members, and we had 207,000 adherents. An adherent is somebody that would include your members, but it would also include people like your unbaptized kids and, and people who are with you who like your theology but refuse baptism. They don't want it, so you know they're not going to be counted in your membership roles. And your people who are here worshiping with you but not yet really com- converted. Okay? So you see the numbers there. 1906, that's like a long time ago, right? Over 100 years ago. Why is 1906 a big year for us? Well, that's the year that the Christian church and the churches of Christ parted ways. And so we start measuring just Church of Christ numbers in that year. Okay? That's where we were. Now look, by 1948, we had skyrocketed. We were at 10,000 churches. First time we hit that number, 1948. We had 600,000 or almost 700,000 members and almost 900,000 adherents. We were doing well in 1948. But look at 1980. Oh, up to 12,762 churches, over a million. A million too. I mean, we were doing great by 1990. We hit our peak. This is our high point. You realize that's it's 27 years ago. That's a while ago. We hit our peak at 1,300 or 13,000 congregations with 1,284,000 members. And the line was going up at this point. There was no reason to think that we wouldn't be at a million three by 1996, but we weren't. By 2006, we were down to 12,000 churches, and we were down by 20,000 members. Where did those people go? Where, what happened to us? Well, whatever it was, it kept happening. Because by 2015, we were down by 100,000 members. There are 100,000 less of us than there were in 1990. Feel it in the air. Feel it in the water. Smell it in the earth. Things have changed. We aren't in the same American culture that we were in 30 years ago. It's a different world now. And we are not an island from the forces that surround us. We just aren't. Those same forces are at work on us in a big way. And they place pressures upon churches. 
Then what do churches do when they fall under these pressures? Well, this is one response. Internecine wars. Worship wars. Worship wars tend to be the result of the changing culture around us. It's why people fight the war. We tend to forget that's why, but that's why it happens. Because what you'll have is you'll have people going, man, we're seeing slippage. We need to double down on who we are. We need to know who we are. And we need to hold on tight to our traditions. We need to do this well. We need to sing our hymns because our hymns are what helped shape us and make us who we are. And we need to do our worship the way we've been doing it because we don't need to lose sight of who we are in this rapidly changing world. That's noble. That is not bad. It is good to know who you are. But then you'll also have people who will say, look, if we want to reach the world that is, we cannot reach it with the us that was. We need to recalibrate. We don't need to change the gospel, but if we're going to communicate the gospel to a world that doesn't know, we have to communicate differently. And so we're going to need to make some changes. We can change our songs. We can change our worship style. We can change the way that we approach things. We can do things differently. That's good. That's not bad. To have a missional mind like that is not bad. To have a mind that wants to preserve and protect who you are is not bad. But what happens when you have those two different strategies for approaching the world in the same group of people? Well, they don't look at one another as admirable. They look at one another as countervailing to my purposes, and they go to war. And in the name of the Prince of Peace... In the name of the mission to the lost world, they declare the mission is to shoot each other, and it's crazy. And churches that go through that end up burned out husks. They blow up. And it takes years to get over a mission, I mean a, a worship war. Years. Long time to recover. Because there's a lot of repentance work to do. And even after they're long in the past, they still have influence and forgiving one another, and loving one another again is really, really hard. But come to, come to ground with this. The reason they happen is because the world has changed, and we're trying to approach it right. Just didn't agree about rightly. Another big thing that happens is that we begin to see the effects of it on churches. As the culture shifts away, and as we can't keep up with culture, you end up with things like slow erosion where you don't notice the slow shift because it takes years, but, but dozens of people leave and you didn't see it happen because they left two at a time. Or you've got nostalgia where the past is hero. Folks, churches should never say, churches should never say, why, you know, the good old days are behind us. Why can't we just go back to them? We always have a God who leaps into the future. We have a God who has plans for, for how to faithfully face this culture. Nostalgia is not our hero. It is our doom. You end up with mission creep, where the mission becomes more and more about us for. We end up with navel-gazing and forgetting the fact that we're meant to love our neighbor no matter how different their value system is. No matter where they are, we've, we're supposed to be about loving them and leading them to Christ Jesus. You end up with a preference-driven church. 
I want my way. Oh, no, I want my way. And, and folks, during a worship war, both sides have preferences. Don't kid yourself. It's not that one side has preferences and you just want to do it right. You know, we are driven by our preferences when, when that kind of junk is happening and it's a mess or, or prayerlessness because people get discouraged and they lose sight of the hope that's in prayer or purposelessness. These are all symptomatic of a church living displaced, church living in exile. To return to Frodo and, and Sam and so forth, to the Lord of the Rings, I love this quote. Frodo says, I wish it need not have happened in my time. I cannot tell you how often as preacher I have said that. Why could I not have lived and died during Christendom, the thing of my youth that made sense to me? Why was I born at the change of the times? I don't want that. I want what makes sense to my childhood because I know how to operate with that, but it's not here anymore. Oh, I wish it need not have happened in my time. To which the wise Gandalf replies, so do I, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what we do with the time that's given us. This is the time it's given us. This is where we live. So what do we do? Well, I tell you what I wanted to do. It was announced in church a while ago. I wanted to go to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and pursue a doctor of ministry. And why did I want to do that? Because I feel somewhat at a loss to the challenges that face us. I feel overwhelmed by them. I want to bless and lead this congregation, to share information with this congregation. And I don't need another doctorate. I wasn't doing that to pursue you know, some sort of credentialing. I was looking at it saying, you know what? This is a way to get church consulting. You know, I can, for three years, and for the cost, we can get consulting at a, at a really good level over an extended period of time. And I feel like the challenges we faced were floundering to meet them. I wanted to do this. And like I say, I'm already a doctor. I don't need the degree. I wanted the information to try and help us. But interestingly, that track of study was canceled. They canceled the whole track. They didn't cancel their DMEN program. They canceled the one that would help us. The one that I looked at and said, that, that's what we need. We need a year of that kind of study and that kind of study and that kind of study. It will really help. Nope, it didn't make. Now, I've got to tell you, the week that happened, I was not worth being around because I was desperate. That's the reason I did this. I don't need to leave my wife and family for that kind of work. I don't need to check out and read the amount I was going to have to read. I don't want to do that. But I want us to thrive. And I was desperate to see it happen. So I was willing to go do this. And you know what I feel like happened? I feel like God said, you're trusting the wrong thing. Don't trust what you know. Your hope isn't in knowledge, Ethan. And your hope isn't in what you can do because you're not the Savior of this church. I felt slapped by God. Thank God He did it, but it wasn't fun. But what do we do? 
as your minister watching what you're struggling through, whether you know it or not, I'm watching what's happening to this church with some fear and trepidation going, what are we going to do? How do we lead this church to thrive again? What can we do in this culture? Are we able to do it, God? What do we do? It's not up to you, Ethan. Well, then who is is it up to? Who's it up to? It's up to God. My first sermon here, my very first sermon here, is on Ezekiel 37 in the Valley of Dry Bones. I didn't know it when I came here, but I, uh, it was a sermon that this church needed to hear. And it was, it, there was more positive feedback to that sermon than I've ever gotten from a sermon preaching, ever. Which should have told me something. You know, that, that this church needed to lean on God. And that that's, you know, that, that we weren't a, a church doing all right, you know, having a few struggles. That we were a church that needed the Word to resurrect us. Well, in four years, I'm thinking that we need to hear this again. We need to return to this message yet again as church and hear what God says to the churches. Because, folks, our hope is in God. Ezekiel has 37 has two images. I think in the last sermon I only preached on one, but I want to hit them both this time. Ezekiel 37 begins with the valley of dry bones. God leads the prophet out into a valley, and it's filled with bones all around. And they're dry. These aren't just dead people. These are long dead people. Why does a valley fill up with bones? It's either an old mass grave or it's an old battlefield where the war went so badly that neither side collected its dead. Whatever it is, it's a place of hopelessness and fall. A place of destruction and death. God leads the prophet out and says, now look at these bones, Ezekiel. Can these bones live? Well, the answer to that is, of course not. No, they cannot. They are dead. They are dry. They are hopeless. They cannot thrive. They cannot succeed. They cannot even breathe. But that isn't what Ezekiel says. And I'll tell you, in a lot of churches across America, the obvious response to can this church live is no. It doesn't have the resources It doesn't have people between the ages of 18 and 30. You know that we don't? It doesn't have what it needs to live. It can't do it. Can these bones live? But Ezekiel gives the correct answer. You know, oh God. I don't know. How could it happen? You're the one who knows. Not me. And so God tells him, okay, well, you prophesy to the bones and you tell them that I will cause the breath to enter them. I will cause them to come back to life. Prophesy to the bones. And so he does. He begins to prophesy. And there's a rattling sound in the valley as the bones rejoin. And then there's sinew. And then there's flesh. And then there's skin. And the bones are all bodies again. But they're not alive. He says, okay, Ezekiel, now you call upon the breath. The Hebrew word for breath is ruach. It's also the word for wind. It's also the word for spirit. 
says, call the Spirit back into these. And so He calls upon the Spirit and instantly the breath enters them and they live, they stand up and they're a vast innumerable army. There's your picture. And what did that? The will of God through the Word of God. The prophet did not do it. God did it. The audience did not do it. God did it. God did it. And He makes that clear. He said to be son of man, these bones of the whole house of Israel, behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost and we are indeed cut off. Four years after the first time I spoke that from up here, i got to tell you, I feel that a lot. I look at our congregation filled with love. I love all of us, but our response to the changing world hasn't been great. And our success hasn't been great. And it's easy for me to be hopeless. Well, God assesses that and says, yes, that's where you are. Okay? No lies about it. You were dead, Israel. You were in exile. You were without hope. And He said, therefore prophesy to them, not to the bones, to Israel. And thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. You shall know that I am the Lord. Should God move among us to make our church more than a loving community on its way out? If He should make our church into a thriving church reaching the nations, then we will know that He is the Lord for only the Lord can do it. The other image that's in Ezekiel is the image of two sticks. He says, write on it the names of Israel and Judah. Write those names and then bind them together and hold them together in your hands so that they become one stick. That's kind of weird. It's not the weirdest thing Ezekiel said, but it's kind of a strange thing. So he does that. And he says, and when the people come and they ask you, what are you doing? What does that mean? Which I'm sure they did with Ezekiel all the time because he's always doing weird stuff. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and I will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all, and they shall no longer be two nations, no longer divided into two kingdoms. Folks, that is impossible. Even when they lived in the land, that was impossible. Those two groups of people hated one another. Their religions had changed and were different from one another. They could not be brought together. When they went into exile, ten of those those tribes were gone. They were absorbed into the world around them. How on earth do you make them into one nation, into one land? Only the Lord God can do it. God can unite people who want to refuse to be united. He can bring together in harmony people who are divided. He can do it. I can't do it. You can't do it. But He can. 
How does he do it? This is how he does it. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then the nations will know that I am the Lord who who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. You see, this is how we reach the world that doesn't know. Notice, it's not to impress us that He does it. He raises us from our graves to impress us. But He makes the divided people into one to impress the nations. Churches that fight, churches that are a mess, they don't impress the nations. People that come among them go, but this does? When we live together willing to put our grudges down and love one another in absolute peace and harmony, how on earth do we do it? By the power of the Lord God. That's it. You won't do it by a decision. Either will I. We do it by the Lord God working in our midst, by the one King who reigns over us. It is by the power and the blood of Jesus Christ that we will live or we will die. Simple as that. Ezekiel lets us know that life and death at all levels are not in our control. They are in God's control. God can look at a hopeless situation and say, you think that's hopeless? Not if I'm there, it's not. Nope. I am God, and I can raise you from your graves. That's what He says. And He can say that to us. Our hope is, our hope is in the Lord. Even the dead can hope in the Lord. Even the dead can hope in the Lord. And folks, we are not dead yet. And on our current trajectory, but we are not dead. It is my belief that this church is worth thriving. I am am praying to God for this church more than I can express. With desperation and with tears, I have prayed over this church for years. Ask the secretaries. They'll tell you. I weep over this church all the time because I want to see her thrive. Because folks, as churches of Christ go, this one's so beautiful. I want to see us thrive and do well and do good things in the world. We are not dead. We can hope in the Lord our God. But that's what we have to do. We have to place our hope fully in Him. We have to rely on Him. We have to trust in Him. We need to pray. We need to triple down and quadruple down on prayer and live together in prayer because our hope is in the Lord and nothing we can do will establish a hope outside of Him. God can unite hopelessly divided people. You have a grudge in here? Some of us do. I know about a few of them. You think that can't get better? Yes, it can. Yes, it can. The Lord God can help you do it. And as much as it is up to you, you can put it down. But you will only put it down if you rest in the hand of the Lord God and you live in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's your hope. And that that God can do. 
You can't do it. You won't be able to, to forgive or to release or to stop punishing without the work of God. But God can hold two sticks together. Two sticks that want to beat each other can be held in the same hand. If God is in our midst, God gives life and God gives unity. That is where it comes from. You know, my sermon schedule for the rest of the year is largely about seeking the face of God. Waiting on God and prayer. For the rest of this year, I'll be waiting on God with you. And as we head into April, through April of next year, we're going to look deeply at prayer. Because this is our hope. Our Lord God is our hope. He is our only hope. And aside from Him, there is no other. But hear this. He is hope. The dead bones have no hope in themselves. But in the Lord God there is hope. Two sticks cannot unite themselves. But in the Lord God there is hope. And I have hope in the Lord our God. I have hope in the Lord our God. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we need You. Father, I confess to You that I have been proud and I have been arrogant and I thought as minister I could do things that I can't. And I am sorry. I need You. Father, as church, we have been losing people that we shouldn't have lost. We have been struggling and not even knowing. And so many of us have felt like things were good. Father, we are in a hard place, but not hard to You. Nothing is hard for You. And I, I cry out to, we cry out together to You, God, heal our church. Bless our church. Help us to thrive. Glorify Yourself in our midst. Let us know that You are the Lord our God when You raise us from our graves. And let the world know that we are Christ's disciples when they see how we love one another. Unite us as only You can. Make us live as only You can. You are our hope. Father, we are thankful for our one King. The King who reigns over us all, who forgives us all, who redeems us all, and is leading us all together into a life of love and glory to You. Help us, Father, to have the courage to face the changing world in faithfulness to Jesus Christ and His love for the world that killed Him. And Father, we pray that You would send Him again and do it soon. And it's in the name of Christ Jesus that we pray. Amen. It may be that you came here today and your heart is burdened and heavy. I want you to know we are a praying church and we want to pray for you. And if you need the prayers of the people of God, we will pray for you. And if you came here today and you're not a Christian, folks, there is no better way of life than following Christ Jesus our Lord. He is an amazing person and a wonderful God. And He will change your life. We would love to talk with you about why we follow Him. If this morning you are subject to the invitation of God, there's space right here. Why don't you come right now while we stand and sing? I,